Investment products are not FDIC-insured, not a bank guarantee, and may lose value. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon. I'm Michael Sembalist, and this is The Eye on the Market. Today, I'm going to explore the ways in which the administration could negatively impact financial markets in the midst of an environment of generally rising growth, profits, and capital spending. Joining me this week is Jack Bartling, who's an international affairs specialist from J.P. Morgan's government relations team. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. It's good to be here. And we're having this session after a pretty substantial correction in the financial markets. It was the first one in quite some time where we've had a 5% drawdown. I think 400 days had elapsed. It was the longest period in market history in probably several decades without a, uh, at least a 5% correction. So I think there's a lot of pent-up profit-taking What we're now concerned about is, even though markets are now roughly flat on the year, we still have very substantial gains accumulated over the last few years. And the question I want to go through this week is, what might the administration do, unwittingly probably, that might further damage market confidence and investor sentiment? And so that's the topic for this week. And where I'd like to start, Jack, is with the midterm elections. You know, there's always a debate as we switch from one administration to another Who gets the credit or the blame for the change of the financial markets? There was a lot of discussion in the 1990s about the Clinton recovery, and obviously quite a few things about the Clinton recovery in the 90s were the foundations that were put in place by prior administrations. That said, there was an undeniable pop in market sentiment, CEO confidence, capital spending intentions after the 2016 election. So I think it's fair for us to try and figure out where we're going with respect to the midterm elections, and whether or not that could have a negative impact on market sentiment if the pro-regulatory Republican Party gets routed. So let's start with that. And what's your take on where we're heading for the midterms? And in the eye on the market that accompanies this session today, we had a couple of charts on this huge jump in the number of Democratic challengers that have raised money to run for a House seat. As I think you know from watching elections over the years, is that the analysis about the midterm elections generally starts, what, the morning after the previous elections. I think this one is no different. But I think where we are today, we saw in November, the Virginia special election was, I think, the one election where people could really draw a lot of information from that. It Historically, a state that was a purple state, certainly trending blue. I think there's some hope people consider it still be a purple state. The election results that day were clearly not good for the Republicans. They seemed to show that there was a lot of voter enthusiasm on the Democratic side. As you've noted, the number of challengers that have come forth has been considerable. The amount of money that's been raised by candidates on the Democratic side is very high as well, too. So between turnout, between filing to run as a candidate and to raising money, all of this is looking as if there is a tremendous amount of enthusiasm on the Democratic side. So you'd have to look if there's mitigating factors on the Republican side, and I think the biggest one right now is time. One week, two weeks, three weeks is an eternity, I think, in politics. The elections are not till November, so it really is a long time away. So whether or not some of the sentiments, I mean, you know, with the president, obviously, anything can happen on any given day. Voter sentiment, public sentiment is, well, people are not lacking in opinions about the president, He certainly drives interest in voters. 
He drives interest in people who clearly in Virginia were otherwise not voting before. But I think at the same time, the hill that the Democrats have to climb is considerable. Yeah. Right now, the betting markets, and obviously the betting markets were very wrong before the last presidential election, right? right? So let's caveat that. But the betting markets and political futures are giving around a two-thirds probability to Democrats retaking the House. And you know, from my tea leaves, it almost seems like—and this is different than I would have thought two or three years ago— but now it seems like it'll be easier for the Democrats to retake the House than the Senate. House and the Senate, yes. Well, in the Senate— I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but every two years, one-third of the Senate is up. You go through these years where one party has to defend a considerable number of seats and the other one does not. I think the Republicans right now have to defend either eight or nine seats. The Democrat, the numbers they have to defend are in the 20s. So the Republicans go in there with an advantage. On the other side of the aisle, I think there are, or the other side of the Capitol, there are 23 seats held by the Republicans that were won by Mrs. Clinton. They need to net out 24 seats to retake the House. Yeah. It doesn't seem like that big of a hurdle to me. And one of the charts that we had in the piece was 24 seats would be at the low level of a wave election. Mm -hmm. And if it did happen, it would be the 10th wave election just in my lifetime. So I think people should probably prepare for that potential eventuality. And I'm not much of a market technician, but I would say I think there's reasons for caution here Because of all the different permutations of political alignment, the worst market returns in the post-war era were Republican presidents with a Democratic Congress or a split Congress. So I don't want to get too deeply into those kind of technicals, but I think it's fair to say that a GOP route in the midterm elections may not be a confidence builder for the investment community. But it's probably worth looking what the overlay is, whether or not the economy was a factor in those wave elections as well, which it may not be. This time, and it may be a mitigating and offsetting factor as well, too. Yeah. So. Yep. Let's move on to trade because the trade issues and the immigration issues, I think, are in some ways even a bigger factor as it relates to market sentiment. Most people shrugged off the initial wave of tariffs on washing machines and solar panels because once you got into the details, they were small. I think a quarter of a percent of all Chinese exports and U.S. imports were affected by this recent round of tariffs, even if you add in some of the tariffs that they're planning on steel and aluminum products. If it gets much broader than this, though, I think you could start seeing investors wondering what kind of impact that's going to have on both exports and inflation. You know, last year, the administration was more bark than bite on trade. And this year, they're coming out of the gates very aggressively I think we're going to withdraw from NAFTA within the next three or four months. So what's your take on Lighthizer and the administration's goals here? Well, I thought the State of the Union address was interesting because, as you had said, the previous year there was a lot of rhetoric on trade. And while the administration issued a number of executive orders to begin to launch a number of investigations, I think the actual decisions that they made were fairly limited. The State of the Union the other night, the president dedicated one, maybe two lines, just depending on how it was structured grammatically. But I think in his essential point was, though, that we expect fair and reciprocal trade relationships. That was it. We were expecting actually a lot more in the State of the Union on trade. But the brevity of a statement does not reflect the amount of activity I think that's going on in the administration right now. I think that his statement was concise, but I think it was profound, and it, I think, should be taken to preview a lot of activity. So 
President has said and his advisors have said repeatedly that they don't believe that the U.S. is receiving sufficient access to markets, that trading partners are living up to their commitments, and they can go on and on. But they are really laying the groundwork, I think, for potentially some significant trade actions. Yeah. But it really does remain to be seen whether or not what they're going to decide, because there really haven't been any hugely consequential decisions yet that I think would significantly change the direction of U.S. trade policy. Yeah. For me, a classic Trump administration move would be to make a trade announcement that got a lot of press, but where the economic impact was small, so that they could score political points with their supporters, but not really take a stance that got the business roundtable, for example, completely in a tizzy. I've got more sympathy for the administration than many of my peers do as it relates to this trade issue in the eye on the market that accompanies our talk. On the issue of reciprocality, the United States has no reciprocality on trade. Every Mm -hmm. single trade agreement we have entails us charging lower tariffs than our trade counterparties. And those trade deals were done for a variety of reasons by both parties in an effort to keep consumer prices low. And I think from what I've read, the State Department had a hand in some of those things because there were some geopolitical objectives to some of those trade deals. That said, this administration has inherited, you know, a bad hand from the perspective of the American worker as it relates to non-reciprocal trade deals and China specifically being what the U.S. Business Roundtable study describes them as, you know, the world's primary copyright infringer. And with respect to making it difficult for other people to engage in foreign direct investment in your own country, there's only two countries we found that make life more difficult for foreign investors than China, and that would be Saudis and the Philippines. So I'm sympathetic to what the administration's trying to accomplish here, which is this kind of fair trade, not necessarily unbridled free trade. That said, it's easier said than done once all those trade deals have been put in place because now the whole global financial system and the global trading system is acclimated to those prior deals. You know, last year, most of the stuff I read about U.S. withdrawing from NAFTA was fairly mild. No big deal. You know, the tariffs in both directions would go from zero to two to four percent. No big deal. Now, all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, we've started to see some much more bearish estimates of an after withdrawal. Half a point off GDP, 300,000 jobs lost, many of them in red states. And so, you know, the administration is going to have to think carefully here because it may not be known exactly what the full impact is of withdrawing from a trade pact. And I think they're going through that analysis right now in a number of regions of the world. So whether it's China, whether it's NAFTA, whether it's Korea, or any other agreement that they're reviewing right now, they're going through not only the analysis of the impact on relations with that particular country, prices, economic consequences, any number of factors that come into play in making those sorts of decisions. And there's political factors as well, too. There's states, particularly in the case of NAFTA, there's states that are heavily dependent on there, or they have a lot of employment tied to exports or economic trade with Mexico and Canada. They're certainly at the point right now where they're making all those calculations. And there are signs, as far as NAFTA is concerned, that they have softened a little bit as far as the timeline was concerned. I think most people had thought that they would make a decision to this point, whether or not they would use that withdrawal leverage. They've scheduled another round of negotiations, which I think is significant. 
president has acknowledged that we're moving into a time with the Mexicans that it's going to be a little bit harder for them to deal and to make some sort of deal as their election approaches, acknowledging that the calendar may not work, this may take longer. So there are some words coming out of them that I think would indicate that there's some analysis going on within the administration as to how do we make a change? How do we make some sort of change in direction in thinking through all the potential consequences? I've been surprised a little bit that the Mexicans haven't moved more, if for no other reason than they've got a lot more to lose than the United States if this deal is scrapped. And then as it relates to China, buzzwords to look for would be if you started to see not tariffs on solar panels and washing machines, but a broader range of household appliances, computers, clothing, furniture, those are the much more broadly traded categories between the U.S. and China. And that's when you'd know that this was really entering a new phase. You know, I think for most of us, we're kind of hoping that the variety of trade actions taken are symbolic and on the margin designed to get other countries to move closer to reciprocal trade, but nothing that rips everything up into a shred of paper on the floor too quickly. Let us jump ahead to this immigration issue, right? Mm -hmm. The market sell-off of the last few days, from my perspective, was catalyzed by the recognition that the Fed's behind the curve, right? We're getting some very strong payroll growth numbers. The U.S. is at full employment. There's shortages of workages in certain areas. And now, at this point in time, with very tight labor markets— The administration is considering the possibility of ending the temporary protected status holder status for a couple hundred thousand Haitians, El Salvadorans, and other Central Americans, most of them living in California and Florida and Texas, which have enormous rebuilding projects in front of them. This is definitely a collision between a long-term national security objective that the administration has and a short-term objective that they might have not to kind of push the Fed into too aggressive a stance. But a couple more wage reports, like the ones we got last week of rising wages, and the Fed's going to have to start tightening with 50 basis points a clip instead of 25, and then the administration will have a problem on its hands as it relates to the financial markets. Right. So I think if these individuals were ordered to leave the country or whenever their status would expire, runs the end of this year, perhaps through the middle of 19, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But I think under normal circumstances, the president's advisors would be advising him to read the law literally. And that is whether or not the conditions in those countries still exist that would render somebody eligible for temporary status. And I think given General Kelly's experience in the region too, and I think his commitment to this issue I think that's the course that they would go, in, which is meaning which is, reading the statute literally. And if the conditions as outlined in the statute don't apply anymore, then the status would be ended. It probably does not apply anymore right now, right? I mean, that, the, the three countries involved that are still right. in desperate economic straits, but right. are no longer technically suffering the immediate aftershocks of natural disasters. Right. I think that's the case, obviously. But we're going into a period now that— we could see some sort of broader immigration deal. I think today people are fairly pessimistic, but there is the foundation for some sort of larger agreement. I tend to think it might happen in two phases, dealing with the DACA question, possibly the DACA plus DACA eligible question, initially with some concessions to the president on the border issues, and does that pave the way 
once you reach an initial agreement yeah. on immigration, does that pave the way for a broader agreement that you can address some of these temporary labor issues, which everybody knows needs to have been addressed for a long time? In summary, to wrap things up here, that's my biggest concern, which is we've had nine years and $11 trillion of federal reserve and other central bank intervention in the markets, all of which was predicated on the notion that inflation would come back very slowly and allow the central banks to step away very gradually and not be disruptive. If you look at goods prices through CPI and the PCE indicators and the usual suspects of goods prices, goods prices are stable. But wages are rising much more rapidly. The job markets are tight. IG Metall, the big German company, gave a 4% pay raise this year, which was 1% to 1.5% higher than what the markets were expecting. And so all of a sudden, I think we're facing an environment where the central banks are going to have to start thinking about acting more aggressively. And my single biggest concern about the administration is that they feed that fire by taking steps like this on the TPS holders to tighten the labor markets even further. I want to thank Jack for stopping by. And my bottom line here is that we anticipated in the outlook that this was going to be a more volatile year with improving economic conditions, but lower PE multiples that coincide with a tighter Fed. And that's actually exactly where we're going. And I think the jury's still out, but I think the risks are rising with respect to the midterm elections, trade, and immigration that on net, the administration is contributing more to some of the problems than helping for investors at this point. So, Jank, thank you very much for stopping by. Good to be here. And I uh, look forward to talking with all of our listeners next time. Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated a member of FINRA and SIPC. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com disclaimer eotm.